Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So I have two sort of warning labels that should be posted on this podium. The first one is that if there's anyone in the room who has seen the title uh, Virtue Christology and thought that this must have something to do with what's called virtue ethics, it doesn't. Or at least it doesn't have anything to do with it intentionally, since I don't know anything about virtue ethics. I know the words. Okay, the second thing is, this is, this is a kind of experiment. In, in academia, you get these ideas, sometimes in classrooms, sometimes just in passing conversations, or sometimes just sitting, reading, eating chips ahoy, and, and things will hit you. Well, something hit me, and I tried my best to think it through and write it out. Is that okay? It's impossible to be on this end of the microphone and not want to go testing one, two, three, okay? So sometime during the lecture, if I just, you'll know why. Okay, so this is an experiment in the sense that I've put ideas together I think that it works. I haven't quite decided whether it's going to be a long paper or whether it has to be a book. It draws on a variety of sources. And as the paper that Kevin referred to that I published in 2010, it is an engagement with modern theology in some ways. What I do um, is very similar to what Professor Hildebrand does. Um, I do what's called patristics. I do first 450 years of the church. And um, Professor Hildebrand did his dissertation on Basil of Caesarea, and I did my dissertation on his younger brother, Gregory of Nyssa. So, In a strange but real way, the first 400 years is where I live most of the time. And I don't think of it as another planet. So this is an experiment. There are handouts which you should have because I'm going to go through those texts. and. When I was invited, I said, so how much time do I have? 
And they said, he said, well, two hours, you can have more if you want. And I thought, no one should be forced to sit through that. Um, but as I grow older, I seem unable to keep time. So uh, I hope you don't have anything planned for later this evening, because no promises. Okay. The title of this paper is Virtue Christology, which is a title, a term that, so far as I know, I invented. It should be understood similar to a title like Logos Christology or Spirit Christology. Um, it is a way of describing who Jesus is, but in a way which doesn't simply identify him, but leads towards the relationship we have. If you have Logos theology or Logos Christology, it means that you identify Christ as the Logos, like in John 1.1, and that has implications. I mean, he's not just the Logos. He is the Logos of the world, and he is the Logos. Each of us have a Logoi in there. So calling him Logos uh, has implications. Call, speaking of virtue Christology, the first thought would be, well, he's going to mean that Jesus is virtuous. Yeah. I'm also going to talk about what it means for Jesus to be virtuous. What is our relationship to a virtuous Jesus? Okay. And the origin of this comes from the research I was doing on the early Trinity book. And I had the sense that the only to, to prepare myself for writing the book, I had to read previous scholarship who brought us to where we are now so that I would recognize when I was just sort of assuming their categories or when other scholars were assuming their categories. So it was sort of like you've ever been to a fancy restaurant and they give you sherbet to cleanse your palate between uh, meal, you know, between dishes. It was sort of like clearing my head. And this required me to read way more Germans than I ever wanted to. So it was under that context in going in to read a group of people who were outside my professional area and who held no attraction to me, for me, um, that I came across this and it just sort of built out. So I wanted you to understand how I got to this because there are a number of things that come together and not having a sense of where this insight's originally coming from, it, can, it might seem a little dislocated. 
Behind theological discourse on Christology is a contemporary discourse on virtue. The meaning of Jesus, as he is described in the New Testament, is understood through a moral psychology. This kind of understanding of the incarnation I call virtue Christology. As the dominant moral psychology changes over time, the understanding of virtue changes, and there is a shift in the theological understanding of the meaning of the life of Jesus. With each change in the dominant form of moral psychology, there is a new dominant form of virtue Christology. The term virtue Christology covers these three uses of virtue in Christology. The first, virtue Christology says, Jesus was virtuous in a way in which only God or someone who had an indwelling of God could have been virtuous. Therefore, his virtue functions as a kind of proof for if not quite his divinity, then at least the fact of his, as Schleiermacher called it, God consciousness. Two, how is it possible for a human to be so morally perfect? How does that happen? This is one question which exists at least from the time of origin, which means early third century, to at least the beginning of the 20th century. So to take the case of origin, origin seems to be the beginning of what will later be called the problem of the indefectibility of Jesus' will. We have to worry about Jesus sinning. How do we know that his human will could sin, so how did it not sin? If we want to know how it is that Jesus' humanity never sinned, since by definition humanity could, Origen comes up with this analogy. The human will has choice and can turn towards sin or, and away from God. Happened once, in, according to Origen, and uh, if there is a human soul in Jesus, how is it possible that that human soul never sinned, since it is part of the character of humans to sin? Origen says, take a bar of iron. The nature of the bar of iron is that it is cold and it sheds no light. But if you stick the bar of iron in a hot fire, eventually it becomes radiant and it becomes a source of heat itself. Christ's human soul was in the radiance of the Son's will and that's why he never sinned. Other patristic, another patristic example of this concern for how is it that he so morally perfect, comes from a late 4th century Greek theologian by the name of Apollinarius, who um, had a heresy named after him. Uh, generally, if there's some theological idea which gets named after you, you've probably done something wrong. Okay, so it's, if one day someone says, well, that's Barnesianism, then you can go, I knew him when before, you know. So, Apollinarianism, 
is a, a way of solving the question, how is it that Jesus never sins? And Polinarius used this anthropology. So all human beings consist of a mind, logos. They consist of a soul, which animates our body, and it can, they consist of a body. So mind, soul, body, logos, suke, sarks. We just have your basic old logos, Jesus. Jesus didn't have a Logos like you and I do. He had the Logos for his mind. So having the Logos, the one described in John 1.1, enabled that God presence that functioned as his mind to keep his soul and his body under control. So that was number two in terms of virtue, the two parts of virtue Christology, number two. Number three uh, quality is Christ functions as a moral exemplar. Jesus is perfect humanity, mortality, excuse me. Jesus' perfect morality serves as perfect exemplar in our attempt to be moral. Jesus as role model. How many of you said, uh, had moms or dads when you were about 13 that went, why can't you be more like Jesus? Okay, that was. Number four, Christ defines or redefines virtue. Even when the dominant moral virtue is, for the patristic period, stoic, you can have the same moral psychology, you can have the classical virtues, or you can say, Christ tells us what true moral virtues are, and they are not A, B, and C, they are D, E, and F. The strongest statement of that is Christ's redefinition of virtue as justice. This turns out to be God's virtue, according to Augustine, which reveals how God loves us. So when I use the term virtue Christology, I'm gonna be referring to all four of these senses and um, I'll try to make clear which one in particular I'm referring to. So to repeat, first one is virtue Christology means that Jesus is so perfectly good that this suggests he's more than human. The second one is, raises the question, he's so morally good, how come? How does that work? Third one is, he's so morally good that he's a role model. And the fourth one is, he's not just so morally good, he tells us, he gives us a new idea of what virtue is. And having two or three, possibly four of these ideas 
makes a Christology of virtue Christology. One important result of recognizing virtue Christology is that this kind of Christology can be followed across the entire history of Christianity. I can plot virtue Christologies from the patristic to the 20th century. Another result is that any, at any given point in the history of theology, virtue theologies can be discovered in different contemporary theologies, and these can be compared and contrasted, even to include what might be called atheist rationalist virtue Christologies, or virtue Christologies in the context of world historical moral exemplars. So one advantage of this is Using the grid of virtue Christologies, you can take two points in time and you can say, okay, what was virtue Christology for Origen? What was virtue Christology for Augustine? And you can compare them. Or you can say, okay, let's take Augustine and see what his contemporaries thought about virtue Christology. And you can take it, and there aren't a lot of these, This is a model, this is a Christology which works up to the 20th century. Now, in my thesis, there are three eras of moral Christology. If I call them stages, that implies development, but there are three types, at least, which do chronologically follow each other. The first one, is when virtue, including Christ, is described in terms of classical moral psychology, of knowledge from will and desire. This period extends up to, to pick an arbitrary marker, either Spinoza or Leibniz, which means early enlightenment. The second era or stage is when virtue Christology is worked through in terms of a psychology of consciousness, and theories of the self. This is enlightenment, particularly German enlightenment, moral psychology, and it produces a virtue Christology. Moral theology shifts from the classical model to that of the psychology of Leibniz and Wolff, and one particular word in import becomes important, Bewusstein, which means consciousness. Kristen Wolff, uses this to talk about our consciousness. And it gets picked up by Schleiermacher, and away we go into Christology. All of this Christology during the time of the Enlightenment is about Jesus's consciousness, his human consciousness. How is Jesus feeling as a human? In this era, namely the Enlightenment, Many theologians and exegetes write what's called, what they call a life of Jesus, in which they self-consciously write a modern, which is, say, enlightenment account of Jesus's life, teachings, and meaning. Hegel writes the first life of Jesus in 1795, followed closely by Schleiermacher. This 
goes throughout the 19th century, the ending more or less with Albert Schweitzer and to some extent with Harnack. The hermeneutical principle of consciousness serves both to provide an epistemological analogy and to define a limit on Jesus's potential consciousness. In the vast majority of such a life of Jesus, there is the underlying presupposition that Jesus was perfectly virtuous. In the very early 20th century, there is an inkling that describing Jesus as sinless is problematic in terms of Jesus being meaningful. What this era nonetheless shares with the previous is a notion of virtue as moral excellence, and that Jesus possessed moral excellence. So what do we mean by virtue when I say virtue Christology? We mean that virtue is moral excellence or right action. The third era or subspecies of virtue Christology begins at some point in the early to mid 20th century and is characterized by two conceptual moves. First, Bewustein consciousness no longer serves as the moral site an epistemological ground for an analogy to Jesus within which he can be made meaningful. And second, virtue is no longer moral excellence. It is, for lack of a better term, suffering. Virtue is suffering. The earliest theological articulation I have identified of this third stage is among those German theologians who are known to other German theologians as the 48ers, which means that in 1948, they started to study theology. They're also called second generation German theologians in their relationship to Nazi Germany and the rise of National Socialism. I'll give you more of this later. While I don't critique this third stage, I do criticize what I call a false consciousness of suffering which is the consciousness of suffering promoted by the 48ers who are the most influential theologians of the last 25 years. So as I said, the grid has the advantage of being diachronically and synchronically functional. A and B are diachronic, C and D are synchronic. The grid covers from the period of the New Testament to 1980s, not every Christology that was ever written anywhere can be usefully discerned under this grid, but the dynamic of virtue Christology continues. There's always a tradition or trajectory of virtue Christology. In this paper, I will treat all three eras of virtue Christology for what they reveal through their comparison. Now, when I first started on this work, I thought that Virtue Christology would be everywhere in the early church. That is to say, Jesus would be held up as a role model for Christians. And I was surprised to discover that, in fact, it's actually relatively rare. And it takes a while to develop. So, um, I'm not very good with the internet. I'm old. Okay. Uh, I still listen to music on CDs. I have, I have records. Vinyl. They spin. I, you put them on a kick wheel 
and they spin and you take a needle and you put the needle on this plastic and music comes out, it's amazing. So I have this little, uh, well, it's not that little. I have this turntable which goes on my belt and a little preamp which runs up to my, so I'm walking around with a record spinning. I have complete Bruce Springsteen. So uh, I have my graduate students who know about the internet. Uh, I said, okay, go find me examples of virtue Christology in the early church. And they came up with a couple of them and I had the wonderful pleasure of going publicly, well, on Facebook, you're wrong. There's a certain amount of go ahead and make my day type pleasure to being a professor, especially with graduate students. It's like, come on, do you feel lucky? And usually they feel lucky and they're not. So they came up with a couple examples which were wrong, which I pointed out to them in front of their friends. It was a very fun day. So first one they came up with is Epistle to Diognetus, which dates from about 165, 170, and it's grouped among what's called the apologists, which is to say a generation, maybe two generations of Christians who are writing to try to explain Christianity to pagans and using the language of the day, which was mostly philosophy uh, in the realm of what we would call religion, uh, to explain, to make meaningful the faith that Christians had, and in a very practical way, to get the pagans to stop killing Christians, okay? Because they did. So this is an apologetic work, Epistle of Diognetus. And just to go through this, uh, for God loved men for whose sake he made the world, to whom he subjected all things that are in the earth, to whom he gave reason and mind, whom alone he permitted to look, upon, to look up to heaven, whom he created after his own image, to whom he sent his only begotten Son, to whom he promised the kingdom which is in heaven, and will give it to those that have loved him. And when you have attained to this full knowledge, with what joy do you think you will be filled? Or how will you love him who so loved you before? And loving him, you will be an imitator of his goodness. And marvel not that a man can be an imitator of God. He can if God wills it. But whosoever, whosoever takes upon himself the burden of his neighbor, whosoever desires to benefit someone who is worse off, whosoever by supplying to those that are in need what he himself has received from God, becomes a God to those who receive them from him. He is an imitator of God. You would think that, that he's talking about imitating Jesus. I mean, a number of these things sound like gospel stories or parables. And you're thinking, okay, he's talking about me imitating Jesus. He's not. He's talking about imitating God. 
know, the one who made everything, etc., the one who sent his son, you're going to imitate him. Next one, Justin, first apology. Justin lived in Rome, about 165, 175. He also wrote what we call apologetics. He wrote letters to two different emperors, trying to get those emperors to rescind the laws that uh, were being used to kill Christians. He did not succeed. I used this example this morning. If you ever saw Gladiator and there was the good emperor that got killed at the beginning, leading to his brother, the bad emperor. Well, the good emperor, who was Marcus Aurelius, is the one who killed Justin. Okay, he was really good, but it didn't stop him from killing Christians. So, in Justin writing to Marcus Aurelius, who's not only emperor, he's a Stoic philosopher, and we have been taught and can, are convinced and do believe that he accepts those only who imitate the excellences which reside in him, temperance and justice and philanthropy, and as many virtues as are peculiar to a God who is called by no proper name. For as in the beginning he created us when we were not, so do we consider that in like manner those who choose what is pleasing to him are, on account of their choices, deemed worthy of incorruption and of fellowship with him. Once again, you wouldn't be foolish to think he's talking about being like Jesus. He's not. He's talking about being like the Father. So we get to, if you flip the page, you get to a person named Origen. Um, Origen wrote the script for an old movie called Groundhog Day. Uh, Origen believed in cycles, that we lived in cycles and we just went through this life over and over again until we got it right, which was Bill Murray, right? So he, had, he was very smart and it didn't do him any good. So Origen, who is writing against a pagan, who has written a book bad-mouthing Christianity, making fun of Christians and Christian belief. Uh, you worship this guy who got crucified? Um, Origen's writing against him, his name was Celsus, and it, here in Origen, so we're talking approximately 220, 230, we get where is the absurdity then in holding that there exists among men, so to speak, two extremes, the one of virtue and the other of its opposite, so that the perfection of virtue dwells in the man who realizes the ideal given in Jesus, from whom there flowed to the human race so great a conversion and healing and amelioration, while the opposite extreme is in the man who embodies the notion of him that is called the Antichrist. It was proper, moreover, that one of these extremes and the best of the two should be styled the Son of God on account of his preeminence. So there, Origen has a pretty clear idea that the ideal of virtue is given to us in Jesus, and to be virtuous, we follow that ideal. In 63, 
It remains, therefore, that that which is after the image of God must be understood to be in our inner man, which is also renewed, and whose nature it is to be after the image of him who created it when a man becomes perfect. As our Father in heaven is per perfect, and hears this, the command, be holy for, and gives the command as a typo, be holy for I, the Lord, am your God, am holy, and learning the precepts, be followers of God, receives into his virtuous soul the traits of God's image. God's image here refers to the Son. God make, has an image of himself, which is perfect image. That's the Son, and the Son is what God is, so to speak, looking at when he makes us. So when it says we are made according to the image and likeness of God, some Jewish and patristic authors will take that to mean not in the image of God, but in the image of the perfect image of God. Then Origen writes the earliest commentary on the Epistle to Romans that survives. And it doesn't survive intact, it's just parts of it are survive. We're talking about something surviving for 1,800 years and by a person who quickly developed a reputation for being strange. There's an order in the levels of advancement and there are degrees within the virtues. And this is the reason Christ is said to reign, that he is righteous until the, until the fullness of the virtues is accomplished in each individual. Repeatedly, we have said that Christ is at the same time wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, truth, and all the virtues. Assuredly, the one who has received these is said to have put on Christ. For if Christ is all these things, the one who possesses them necessarily has Christ as well. The next thing is Gospel of John. You doesn't belong chronologically there, but there's a reason why I've put it there. We'll get to it. So, Origen seems to be the earliest Christian who actually articulates explicitly a virtue Christology. Uh, Christians will talk about imitating God before they'll talk about imitating Jesus. Part of the reason for that is that it is understood quickly that there's something different about Jesus that he's not just a really, really, really good person. Okay. Now if you flip the page again, go to the middle, Arnobius, the case against the pagans. If in, the, in origin you start to see apologetics turn from we're really not bad people, please don't kill us, to do you realize how bad you people are? Okay, don't put us down when your lives are crap. Crap, there's a translation of the Greek crapeomai for those of you who are studying Greek. Okay, so Arnobius is criticizing the Romans and he says, you were sent to us by a king supreme for the purpose of the very highest moment. 
My opponent will perhaps ask if this matter can be proved. There is no greater proof than the credibility of the acts done by him, than the unwanted excellence of the virtues he exhibited, than the conquest and the abrogation of all those deadly ordinances which peoples and tribes saw executed in the light of day with no objecting voice, which is a very complicated way of saying uh, he did very good things in public and everybody saw it. And even they whose ancient laws or country's laws he shown to be full of vanity dare not allege that the things that he did were false. So there's a clear case, almost a full four-point virtue Christology. Jesus is so good, it makes you think he's got to be God. Um, he shows us what virtue is, and we learn from him. Arnobius has a student by the name of Lactantius, and Lactantius is the court theologian for the Emperor Constantine. This is early fourth century, so we're talking like 300 to 313. It is Constantine who makes Christianity legal. And Lactantius says, and he actually stood in front of the emperor the way I'm standing, and he read this six-volume book to the emperor, sort of going like this all the time, okay? So, among the things of this world, there cannot be one worth heaven and veneration, it is only virtue, only justice, which can be considered a, a true heavenly eternal good, because it is neither granted nor to nor taken from anyone. Since Christ came to earth equipped with that virtue and justice, or rather, since he himself is virtue and he himself is justice, he came down in order to teach it and to form man. When he had done his teaching, fulfilling his instructions from God, then because of the virtue which he had both taught and exemplified in action, he not only earned the belief of all people in his divinity, but also made their belief possible. Bingo. Wonderful statement, early fourth century. I'm not gonna read the 2617, Quote, it says about the same thing. The 16.3 quote is so perfect. Um, but it took 300 years. So what we have there is through looking at who is talking about virtue Christology, we see that the three earliest cases are people who are engaged in apologetics. People who are trying to explain Christianity to other people, to make Christianity seem sensible and rational in the sense of we are not crazy, superstitious people. So there is an attempt to find common ground. And the one thing that Romans valued was virtue, because they were under the belief that what the reason why Rome had become such a great empire was because Romans were so virtuous. 
So they set a very high value on private and public virtue. And these Christians are going, look, you value virtue? Christ is virtuous and makes us virtuous. So there is this apologetic context, and there's also what comes to be called the political theology in the sense that Lactantius in particular is trying to shape the emperor's ideas about religion and how a government ought to act, how the emperor should act. So Lactantius is applying this not just to say, don't kill us, but to say, you know, this is what goodness is. If you want to be a good emperor, this is what you ought to do. Turn now to Augustine of Hippo, who is in some very real sense an heir to Lactantius's apologetic approach to political theology. However, while Lactantius's description of Christ as moral exemplar, Lactantius's virtue Christology is straightforward, Augustine's is very much not straightforward. It is complicated, so complicated that the best living scholar of Augustine's political theology, a man by the name of Robert Dodaro, takes 218 pages with his book, Christ and the Just Society and the Thought of Augustine, to lay it out with care, the care and precision it deserves and almost certainly requires. I will not speak of it in 218 pages. At this point, you're quietly going, Deo gracias. Okay, but neither will I accomplish the position that Dodaro offers. The one thing that I can say immediately as a guide about Augustine's virtue Christology is that for Augustine, Christ's exemplarity is not discovered in a plain sense reading of scripture, including the New Testament. The Christian knows Christ as moral exemplar only through graced faith which enables the Christian to begin to recognize the true virtue of the unique being Christ, which resides within scripture, any part of which can only be understood by reaching for the whole, reaching but not actually grasping. Augustine is a wonderful example of the principle that anthropology precedes Christology. This is an example too. Augustine's understanding of the moral content and significance of Christ's unique existence as a person, as two person, as two, of a person as two natures, develops beneath the gravity of the Pelagian controversy. Pelagius lived in the late fourth, early fifth century, and he taught that virtue is a, that being a good Christian is simply a matter of learning what the good is and going out there and doing it. He taught that there is no original sin. He taught that death is not a consequence of sin. And he taught that people could, in fact, if they tried really hard, obey all the laws of the Old Testament. So why aren't you doing that? And Augustine has an argument with him that lasts almost 20 years. In 
In one way, perhaps no other Christian theologian held so strongly to a virtue Christology because Augustine brought the moral issues at stake in the controversy with Pelagius together with the logic that was required of understanding Christ as the perfect union of the divine and the human. It took approximately 400 years to articulate this sentence that I'm about to say. Christ is one person with two natures. For about 350 years, the best people could do is, there's him and he's got two of them, okay? Or in him, there's two. There's two watts and one him. Theology takes a long time, <laughs> sort of like the paper. So. Um, from another perspective, however, ver few virtue Christologies offer Jesus as so limited an exemplar, given that his moral state is determined by a condition that no human can duplicate. He is God and man in one. Jesus' moral psychology is like no one else's. Augustine must emphasize this fact in order to express the reality of the union that occurs in Jesus and also to deny Pelagius' claim that Jesus proves how moral we can all be if we only tried. In most virtue Christologies, Christ's moral exemplarity, the examples of right action that Christ displays for us to imitate, can be read off the text. Children's color, coloring books can offer line drawings of Christ healing the crippled or offering a stone to the crowd with the adulteress standing by. Augustine, by contrast, argues that whatever is important spiritually in a story about Christ, actually whatever is important spiritually in any story in the Bible, cannot be read off the text directly. Our soul gains nothing by reading a narrative literally. And indeed, the Archimedean point that allows us to move the world of the text only confirms our pride and our deep intellectual self-deception. Understanding the text is a spiritual journey punctuated by degrees of perfection which are not inaugurated by the reader. So, for Augustine, in, under, in order to understand what Jesus is really doing, what scripture is really saying, first you have to receive grace. That grace gives you faith. That faith triggers humility in you. That humility purifies and heals a mind which is otherwise corrupt and sick. When you are to the degree that you are purified and healed, you can begin to read scripture, which is a mystery. Scripture itself, the text is a mystery, a sacrament. You can read scripture the way you look at the host. It's the best thing, and Augustine talks this way. When we read scripture, we should read scripture the way we see the host. Which is, usually we read scripture in a way in which we would go, that's a white, flat piece of bread 
that sticks to the top of my mouth as I walk down the aisle after communion. So you have to have grace so you can have faith, faith so you can have humility, humility so you can be purified and healed. Your mind has to be purified and healed so you can begin to understand, so you can read. And then you have to interpret scripture, what I'm calling dialectically or holistically, which is each bit of scripture is connected to all the rest of it. And if you read it in isolation, it's like you're holding up one piece of a jigsaw puzzle and going, this is the whole thing. Scripture must be in interpreted dialectically or, hol or holistically. In this way, reading without exegesis yields no meaning. I think any teacher working through a text with students has experienced that moment when the hitherto secure surface of the text cracks like dead wood when you ask, and what does that sentence mean? Okay, you can read a text, you can say the words out loud, and you think you get it, and then someone says, so what does that mean? And then you realize you have no idea. So, to summarize the problem Augustine lays before us, if Christ is, a, is an exemplar of humility because he is the Son of God doing what he did, then in terms of our perceiving this exemplarity, faith and grace must precede our perception of this exemplarity. Faith and grace must precede our perception of Christ's exemplarity because one must recognize who Christ is, namely the Son of God, in order to perceive his humility. And this recognition occurs within a faith given by grace. In other words, without grace, you can't believe and know that Jesus is the Son of God and so what he does, in the words of Philippians 2, 5 through 7, to paraphrase, is an amazing act of surrender. If you don't know who he is, then what he does seems like something that went horribly out of plan. Now, I was going to walk you through how uh, Augustine would read John from what I'm talking about, but there isn't, I can see I'm going to take too long anyway. But this is the gospel reading from today. And when I heard it, I thought, okay, this is a great Augustine text because Jesus said, says something literal, right? Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus goes, nobody can do that. And Jesus says, you don't understand. You know, I'm saying something, you're taking it literally, you don't get it. And he expresses it in terms of flesh of flesh and spirit of spirit and goes on, you know, uh, you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes or where it goes. And Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus says, you're a teacher and you don't know what this means. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you the heavenly things? In other words, if I tell you things which help you as in your relationship with people and you don't believe me, how can you believe me if I tell you things 
that helps your soul in relationship to God. If you don't believe me in the little things, you're not going to believe me in the big ones. So that's basically how it, that text from today's gospel is a very good Augustinian text in terms of understanding scripture literally is not really what it's about. And I could develop it further, but that would take even longer. Okay, the last comment I want to make about Augustine's understanding of how human consciousness governs our moral decisions. For Augustine, the fundamental moral problem we face is the fact of our mortality, our inevitable deaths. The fear of this death prevents us from being happy and distorts our moral, our moral frame of reference. We misvalue the goods we must choose among. If you've ever read Confessions in Book 4, there's a long meditation on such a misevaluation in the face of the death of Augustine's best friend. In De Trinitate, on the Trinity 13, Augustine gives our fear of death as the reason why the Son had to become incarnate, suffer, and die. Nothing else would prove to us how much God loved us. This recognition contrasts strongly with the attitude towards personal death displayed during the Enlightenment, which is the next stage. Death is natural and is experienced like the, ex the extinguishing of a candle. How much does anyone suffer from a sense of grief over the thousands of centuries that came and went before we were born? So too should we regard the centuries after we die. You never spent time going, gee, I wasn't here for 3,000 years of civilization. I'm going to be sad. So you shouldn't go, gee, I'm not going to be here for another 3,000 years of civilization. I'm not sad. By one of those strange ironies of history, the first strong philosophical protest against the Enlightenment dismissal of our fears about death came from a philosopher named Martin Heidegger in the early 20th century. I do not often say nice things about Heidegger, whom I regard as a dirty little Nazi, and, I'm, and I do not expect to ever have anything else nice to say about him. But the fact remains that in his philosophy, our fear of death is the central fact of human consciousness. Postmodern thought thus makes a strange recovery of an awareness that was fundamental for much of patristic theology. I have been teaching for over 30 years. I know that having an active sense of your mortality is not an easy thing as an undergraduate, or as a graduate student, or as an adult, until something happens which makes you understand. Sometimes you can lose a parent or a sibling, or sometimes you can be diagnosed with disease that is fatal. Sometimes you nearly get killed. Sometimes somebody close does get killed. Uh, I tell my undergraduates that within five years of their graduation, at least three people in their graduating class will be dead, statistically. 
And then I ask them, I ask these people who are going to die to raise their hands so we know. Everybody looks around the room and he's the one who's going to die in three years. Within five years of graduating from college, I had three friends who were dead. I think I had four. And my graduating class, you put my graduating class and my junior and the junior class together, and you get 65 people. So within five years out of 65 people, four people were dead. It is an unavoidable fact that whatever has been significant for German Christology in the last two centuries has been fundamental for nearly all Christologies of the last century. This influence has been communicated through three related and mutually reinforcing channels of theological scholarship. First is the case that the modern historical critical methods for reading the New Testament, which for over a century have largely defined scripture studies, were pioneered and normalized by German scripture scholars. And thus, any modern Christology employing the, old, the New Testament owes to some German construct of post-Enlightenment hermeneutics. Indeed, any modern Christology which doesn't employ the, old, the New Testament owes to German constructs of post-Enlightenment hermeneutics, as the case of the theologian Skilobeks exemplifies. He wrote two books on Christology, one called Jesus, one called Christ. The one called Christ that had no New Testament references in it. The second channel for the influence of the Germans lies in the fact that the three most influential modern histories of early Christology belong to the same German liberal school and all share the same Christological presuppositions. I am referring to F.C. Bauer, William Bousset, and Adolf von Harnack. The third channel by which 18th and 19th century developments have become fundamental for virtually all Christologies of the last century is that the most influential body of theology among Protestants in the 20th century is overwhelmingly German in origin. And among Catholics, the influence is still very strong, if not quite the functional monopoly it has been for Protestant theologians. It is, moreover, a feature of modern German Protestant theology that it self-consciously develops through a conversation relationship with earlier German theology, especially scripture studies. Finally, I want to remark upon a truth which may at this point seem irrelevant, but which I think is key for 20th century Christologies. Not only are German theologians of the 20th century the most influential theologians across all national national and linguistic borders, but it is German theologians of a certain generation who have exerted most of this influence. That generation may be broadly identified as those theologians of sufficient age to have experienced World War II directly, and I will treat them in the third section of this paper. So that's why I'm talking about a bunch of Germans. My mother is French, French, French. She lived through the Second World War in Southern France. She tells stories about having to eat dogs. She was a Girl Scout and their troop was required to go out and gather 
the bodies of bombing victims and haul them off. When she would walk to school in the morning, she would see the bodies of resistance fighters hanging from the lamp poles along the street as she walked to school. And uh, my mother has told my brother and I, my brother's five years younger than me, my mother has told us that if we ever go to Germany, she will write us out of the will. And once we were at the bank talking to some bank manager about, you know, signing papers for the inheritance, you know, to move things over. And I joked about this, and the bank manager thought that surely I wasn't serious. And my mother, who was 87, looked him in the eye and said, yes, I am. And he didn't say anything more. Okay. Pre-modern Christology and exegesis of scripture were contained within a single epistemological hermeneutic, epistemology being the, governing, being the governing concept. How do we know something? At some historical point, which can usefully but not exclusively be identified with Spinoza, exegesis of scripture came under a separate epistemological hermeneutic. That is to say, we understood scripture in a different way than we understood everything else. For my purposes here, it is sufficient to identify this new separate epistemology simply as the Enlightenment or modern. In Protestant exegesis, the separate parallel existence of the old epistemological hermeneutic for reading scripture and the modern one did not endure long as the modern hermeneutic consciously built from new exegesis to new Christology. In other words, there was doctrine of Christ, which built off of an old way of reading scripture, and then there was this new way of scripture, reading scripture, and there was doctrine, and there were the academics, and they ran in parallel, and then they came together. This, the expansion which brought exegesis and Christology back within a single hermeneutic may be seen in the series of Lives of Jesus, for example, by Schleiermacher, Strauss, and Weiss. Christology itself came to be characterized as a kind of struggle between the new rational-based hermeneutics and scripture, not simply the text of scripture, but the idea of scripture. This has not gone away. As Ptolemy has struggled, had struggled to save the appearances of a geocentric universe from the increasingly complicated celestial geometry necessary to maintain it, so modern New Testament exegetes struggled to save the appearance of inspired texts that testified to the claims by and for Jesus the Christ from increasingly vitiating scientific criticisms. The ultimate solution to Ptolemaic celestial geometry was to decenter the observer and to relativize the sure sight of the night sky. When you go outside and you look up in the sky, it sure looks like we're the center of the universe, but we figured it out and we're not, so you don't believe your eyes. The ultimate solution to New Testament authority and the uniqueness of Christ was to centralize the observer and to relativize the obvious sense of the canonical text. Yeah, it looks like it says that, but 
you know, it means sort of what you think it means. In this way, then, Christology was exegetically determined, and exegesis was the only modern theology of Christ. Indeed, back in 1957, Hans Kozelman could remark that form criticism of the New Testament was Christology, all of it, and that modern Christology was built from nothing else but form criticism of the New Testament. The centralization of the observer occurs through the normative function that subjectivity or consciousness plays in establishing the way in which the meaning of Christ is communicated to us. Jesus possessed a consciousness in its nature that was human as ours is, and thus consciousness provides the common unit for us to draw analogies to Jesus' proclamation and in this way to receive him. The other way that consciousness has a normative function over the reception of the New Testament text is that our consciousness establishes the limit for Jesus' consciousness. Thus, in the link between Christology and exegesis, human consciousness has hermeneutical, epistemological, and anthropological function. One problem that immediately becomes evident is that this is a lot of freight for one concept, consciousness, to carry. The question of the exact nature of consciousness and the content by which it carries freight has a vigorous and dense running history in German, theot, in German thought, of which the two most conspicuous and difficult to read examples are Kant and Heidegger. It can be argued that Schleiermacher's use of Christian Wolff's notion of consciousness means that po German post-Enlightenment Christology depends upon the beginning of this running history. Unfortunately, in English language appropriations of the, con of the concept of consciousness, Bewustein, and in the translation of consciousness, the density of the concept is so flattened that its functions are concealed, and all that is left is a very pragmatic, I know what that word means, level of Christology and exegesis. In the earliest post-Enlightenment Christology, represented by Schleiermacher's biography of Jesus, called The Life of Jesus, the problem is raised of Christ seeming totally other. He lived in a time and thought world deeply different from Enlightenment thought. This acknowledgement that Jesus lived in a time and thought world is important because it signifies an awareness of the historical character of our knowledge. Jesus lived at another time. He thinks differently. The past is a different country. In particular, it signifies an awareness of how each of us are in our consciousness limited by the historical moment we find ourselves in. Jesus was a Jew of the late Second Temple living in Palestine, occupied by the Romans. The otherness of Jesus is a Christological question because it goes to the root of the question, how can Jesus be meaningful for us today? It also encompasses the question of what or who exactly was Jesus. The otherness of Jesus is resolved through knowledge by analogy of his human consciousness, which is of the same kind as ours. We have consciousness because we're human. He must have consciousness. If he has human, we can understand the way he thinks or he thought and he felt because he's human. While Schleiermacher occasionally expresses doubts about determining the historicity of some New Testament event, 
or knowing the mechanics of seemingly supernatural occurrences, he is nonetheless confident enough that based on the reality of Christ's human consciousness, and that this single consciousness is the only one exegetes have to deal with, we can see through to the psychological realities that made up Jesus' life. Only in this way could Jesus' life have any meaning for us. Having insisted on the reality of Jesus' humanity, that is, having made fundamental for Christology and exegesis that Jesus' consciousness was historically limited, the peculiarity of Jesus comes to the fore in the only arena that mattered, knowledge of God's will. Jesus thought things that he shouldn't have been able to back then. Since at least the time of Spinoza, 17th century, modern exegetes have argued that Jesus' consciousness, while fully human, was nonetheless different in content from normal human consciousness. This difference is manifested in the fact that Jesus expressed many hundred years ago a moral sensibility that had only become available to human reason 17 centuries later in Germany. Jesus' mentality was recognizably, indeed obviously, the moral mentality of enlightened reason. And how else could that have been the case except if something singular and spiritual had occurred to him? Jesus was, as it were, a figure displaced in moral time, like Bruce Willis and 12 Monkeys. And it took an intellect of pure reason to recognize his preaching for the prophetic event it was. Spinoza allows both Moses and Jesus this prophetic office, this speaking then what could only be known now. Modern reason recognized in Jesus' ministry the same moral truths that the mind of the Enlightenment acquired through its freedom from superstition, authority, and the church. The fact of Jesus' perceptions, his articulations of these moral perceptions, and his fidelity to the principles so fruitly articulated and lived quickened the moral life of any enlightened mind that saw him for what he undoubtedly was, undoubtedly but inexplicably was. He perfectly collapsed sensibility, word, and action into a modern moral monad. Although Schleiermacher can meaningfully be placed at the beginning of this trajectory of German post-enlightenment Christology, in several important ways he is not fully representative of what follows. Schleiermacher is at pains to explain how Jesus' claim to be the Son of God can be reasonably understood without jettisoning the creeds. In this regard, he is more like the faithful skeptic Descartes and less like Spinoza, whose attitude was reason and mortality uber alles. However, Schleiermacher does provide the fundamental logic for German Enlightenment Christology in that he identifies in Jesus a total identification with the will of the Father. After Schleiermacher, it remains a fundamental concept that the subject of Christology is a description of the consciousness that Jesus possessed, accompanied by, by speculation on the cause of that consciousness and the unfolding of the content of that consciousness, which is identified with a total psychological commitment to the moral will of the Father. A total psychological commitment to the moral will of the Father is a commitment at which the objective will of the Father is internalized and experienced as a subjective reality. Christianity is, Christology is thus necessarily completed with the question of how is Christ Christology, how is Christ consciousness meditated into ours 
so as to become ours. There is one important exception to this understanding of Christology, which is to say, how is Jesus's understanding of himself mediated to us so we understand ourselves the same way? The dominant scholarly exegesis separated Jesus from the apocalyptic language and claims that are attributed to him in the synoptic gospels. If Jesus said those words, he used them only as teaching symbols. Jesus himself could not have believed in the two-tiered world and the dualism that apocalyptic theology described. Apocalyptic theology was unjoyous, anti-world, and deeply superstitious. Jesus was none of those. For those scholars and theologians who understood apocalyptic theology as I've just described it, apocalyptic theology was not just anachronistic, dualistic, and unworldly. It was insofar as it remained in modern Christian minds subversive of Christian identity and its modern self-definition. Apocalyptic theology was regarded as so ruinous, embarrassing, and alien to the essence of true Christianity that in 1895, Hermann Gunkel, the author of a famous and influential commentary on Genesis, as well as the author of a foundational work in modern pneumatology and functionally the sugar daddy of form criticism, published a book in which he argued that Revelation chapter 12 was neither Christian nor Jewish, and that chapters 11, 13, and 17 were not dependent upon Daniel, but upon a Babylonian creation myth that influenced Daniel, but which was retained in its more pure form in the book of Revelation. But what if Jesus had believed the superstitions he, had, he seemed to use? What if Jesus had truly said those irrational claims that had previously been attributed by these critics to either the apostles or the primitive church? What if Jesus believed that the kingdom of God was an imminent eschatological world historical event rather than the community of progressive liberal smart people? This was the shocking thesis that Johannes Weiss argued in 1892. The apocalyptic teachings attributed to Jesus in the synoptics were indeed Jesus's, and Jesus himself, of all people, believed in that eschatology. Julius Kaftan, Bultmann's teacher, remarked that if the kingdom of God was an eschatological teaching by Jesus, then it was useless to theology. Christology from Spinoza to Albrecht Richtel was no longer possible. The gap that had previously yawned between Jesus and his contemporaries now yawned between Jesus and the contemporary modern reader. At this moment, Christology proved, provoked a crisis in ecclesiology, for only two theological alternatives were now possible. If Christ really believed all that weird stuff, then there was only two things we could do. First, release Christianity from the bondage of the beliefs of its founder and let an evolved consciousness provide the content of, this, of the religion. This should be familiar. Or to separate the man Jesus from the transformative object of experience, Christ. So there was Jesus, who was this historical figure, and there was Christ, who was an experience. This second option at least had the spiritual warrant of Paul, 
whose conversion seemed to owe nothing to the historical Jesus and everything to the glorified Christ. If Christ had been met by Paul on the road to Damascus, then who was to say that this same Christ could not be met on the road to Tübingen or Pittsburgh? When Weiss, whose scholarship revealed the apocalyptic Jesus, described in 1892 the consciousness of the modern Christian, he said, we no longer pray, may grace come and the world pass away. But we pass our lives in the joyful certainty that this world will evermore become the showcase of a humanity of God. By the beginning of the 20th century, that joy and that certainty were being whittled away. From a historical perspective, we can say that the voice of what is now called the anti-enlightenment, Nietzsche above all, grew stronger. The typical state of the reflective mind, the consciousness, grew more and more to be that of being burdened by a history from which there seemed to be no escape. It was as though everything from the earthquake of Lisbon in 1775 to the violence of the French Revolution of 1779, to the failure of the German Revolution in 1848, demand, demanded decisive redemption. Later, the killing fields of 1914 to 17 and the Babylonian captivity of the Treaty of Versailles in 1920 would be added to that list. Where before, Paul's experience of the spirit-filled community had been the image of Christian consciousness, there now crept the Paul of 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, a consciousness of unbearable sorrow. The understanding that a community was the kingdom of God within us was not abandoned, but the consciousness which identified that community was no longer happy and confident. It suffered, and I'll quote, the enduring the unendurable and suffering the insufferable. As paradigms of the third stage or type of, victor, of virtue Christology, I turn to post-World War II German theology. Used Enlightenment German theology, now post-World War II because of its influence. I already remarked that in my judgment, German theology is key for virtually all 20th century Christologies. Not only are German theologians of the 20th century the most influential theologians, but it is Germans of a certain generation who have exerted most of this influence. The generation may broadly be identified as those theologians of sufficient age to have experienced World War II directly. Young German theologians, people in their 30s, early 40s today, have worked out a genealogy of themselves, and they recognize four generations of 20th century German theologians. First generation, theologians who were alive and professionally theologians during the time of National Socialism, Nazi Germany. Second generation, what, people who are called the 48ers, who were alive but not adult during National Socialism, Nazi Germany. Nazi is just an abbreviation for National Socialism. Third generation, those who were not alive during, during the time of the Nazis, but know about it, hearing about it from generation one and two, who were their parents or their grandparents. 
And fourth is the generation in which the historical connection to any experience of the Nazis is tenuous. They have not grown up in households where they could hear first-person accounts of World War II. A good account of this self-described fourth generation is a man by the name of Bjorn Kronendorfer, who has published several articles in a book on post-Holocaust German theology, how Holocaust, the Holocaust functions as a dividing point in German theology, how one relates to showeth functions in German theology, basically the story of how everyone denied the Holocaust. The article I will be referring to the most by Kronendorfer is entitled Theological Innocence and Family History in the Land of the Perpetrators, which was published in 2004. The most influential German theologians who have exerted the most influence belong to that generation, as I've said, which may be broadly identified as those theologians of sufficient age to have experienced World War II gen directly, the second generation, the 48ers. I will use two such theologians to make my point about third stage virtue Christology, postmodern virtue Christology. I will talk about Jürgen Moltmann and Johann Baptiste Metz. Moltmann is Protestant, Metz Catholic. My principal point will be that most modern virtue Christology, or actually post, most contemporary, comma, postmodern virtue Christology, is characterized by a significant discontinuity with first and second stage virtue Christologies. For both first and second stage virtue was right action, and to be virtuous was to do the right thing. Third stage virtue Christology does not identify virtue with right action. You remember when I put that diagram up of A, B, and C, I said one of the things you can do with my idea of virtue Christology is that you can compare across time how people thought about Christ as virtuous, what virtue is, and then you can say something about changes and continuities. Okay. Kurendorfer places post-war German theology in its historical context, and unquote. When the war, with the war's end, he writes, a memory discourse developed that portrayed Germans as a suffering people, victimized first by Hitler's fascist regime, then by the Allied war campaign and denazification program, end quote. In the 1950s, German sociologists spoke of Germany as a country with an inability to mourn. However, more recent research by American and German historians has revealed that Germans are, quote, quite capable of mourning, not for the victims of Nazi persecution and of the concentration camps, but for the German refugees and expellees displaced persons, for German prisoners of war, and for German civilians who had suffered from the relentless Allied bombing raids." End of quote. The fate of such Germans is recalled with self-pity and compassion, and the church in Germany fostered and partook in these sentiments. For example, until 1986, the main established Church of Germany, the Evangelical Church of Germany, employed a ministry responsible solely for the pastoral counseling, counseling of those who were accused of being war criminals. But there was no comparable church ministry 
for the victims of those war crimes. I now turn to the accounts offered by Moltmann and Metz of their beginnings as theologians. This is Moltmann describing the beginning of his intellectual life. For, all, for as much as he's published, his memory begins here. In the last week of July 1943, this is Moltmann, Hamburg was destroyed in a firestorm as a result of the British Royal Air Force's Operation Gomorrah. 40,000 people perished. With my school class, I was in a flak battery, an anti-aircraft battery, in the inner city as an auxiliary. It was wiped out, but the bombs which tore away the school friend standing next to me spared me. In the night, for the first time, I cried out to God. My God, where are you, was my question. Why am I alive and not dead like the others? During three years as a prisoner of war, I looked for an answer, first in the Old Testament Psalms and then in the Gospel of Mark. When I came to Jesus' dying cry, I knew, there is your divine brother and redeemer who understands you in your God-forsakenness. I sought knowledge to give support to my existence and abandoned my previous interest in becoming an engineer. Auschwitz and Hiroshima disturbed me deeply." End of quoting from Moltmann. Now I'm going to quote from Metz, who is also second generation 48er. Towards the end of the Second World War, at the age of 16, I was snatched out of school and conscripted into the army. After a hasty training in the barracks at Würzburg, I arrived at the front, which by that time had already advanced over the Rhine into Bavaria. My company consisted solely of young people, well over a hundred of them. One evening, the company commander sent me with a message to battalion headquarters. I wandered during the night during sh through shattered, burning villages and farmsteads, and when next morning I returned to my company, I found only the dead, dead bodies overwhelmed by a combined fighter-bomber and tank attack. I could only look into the still dead faces of all those with whom on the previous days I had shared the anxieties of childhood and the joys of youth. I cannot remember anything but a silent cry. I can still see myself there today, and my childhood dreams have collapsed before that memory. I'm going to read Krondorfer's analysis of Metz's description. I think it's important to note, this is a modern living German talking about an older German, fourth generation talking about second generation. Taking a look at Metz's style reveals a passive voice that assists in creating a pastoral image of a faithfully destroyed community, an image of innocence. The use of the passive voice is part of a linguistic operation through which the events are recalled, snatched out, conscripted, conscripted into, overwhelmed by. Those are all passive voice statements. Other discursive elements suggest childish innocence and confusion, hasty training of solely young people, wandering through the night, anxieties of childhood, and paint a picture of a lost and perished home, 
snatched out of school, shattered burning villages and farmsteads, still dead faces instead of the joys of youth. Much is left unsaid or left to the imagination. Who snatched him out of school? Who burned the villages? How did he relate to wearing a uniform? In his own teenage mind, what was he fighting for? Both Moltmann and Metz affect a narrative of victimization, one which prepares the way for their identification with others who suffer innocently as they suffered innocently. In an article, I hope you could, you could hear the sarcasm, okay? In an article published in 2012, scholar Anne Fell begins with the observation that stories are not determined only by the way they end, but by the moment chosen to begin them. The end determines the beginning, and the beginning gives credibility to the end. Moltmann and Metz begin their life stories with memories of their victimhood, and end them with a personal and theological claim to identify with victims. It intrigues me that Moltmann ends his pericope of innocence and moral outrage by invoking Hiroshima and Auschwitz. Fell's article is entitled Hiroshima and the Holocaust. She examines how those two events are paired as symbols of the evil humans commit and suffer. It amuses me that Moltmann should make himself an equal spectator to both Hiroshima and Auschwitz, as though his moral relationship to either or both of them was the same. He was as guilty of Hiroshima as he was Auschwitz. The citizens of Hiroshima are equally spectators, and there the beginning equally serves the end. The beginning is Hiroshima is bombed. The end, post-nuclear Hiroshima becomes a symbol of the quest for world peace. In Hiroshima, there stands a great park dedicated to peace that is centered around the point of impact. This is called the Peace Memorial Gardens. People who have been going there are consistently moved by this park. The architect of the park, was named Tange Kenzo, who had been commissioned in 1942 to design a park commemorating the construction of the Cooperative of Greater East Asia, which is to say, which is to say, the Japanese invasion of the rest of the Pacific that started in 1931. He was commissioned immediately after the war to design the Hiroshima Peace Garden. Kinzo turned in as his design for the Peace Garden, the same design that he had written up for the 1942 request for a public garden to commemorate the Japanese conquest of Asia. That fact is not made public in Hiroshima. So the question becomes, what's the relationship in history between a city which claims to be a victim 
has its monument to its innocence made out of the design for a monument to the actions that started the war that got them bombed. At this point, with this third stage of virtue Christology, I think a profound change has come about. We have, in the, moder in the postmodern world, developed what the Marxist would call a false consciousness. Augustine once said that the most trustworthy human statements were statements of confession. Confession to God and confession to our neighbor, which is why he wrote the Confessions. Those are the most trustworthy human statements to admit our sins and to experience humility. Postmodern theology in the form of Moltmann and Metz does not begin with a confession. It begins with placing the author, the theologian, in a place in history in which he was part of the horror, but experiences that moment in innocence. So from my perspective, what I'm arguing here is that by comparing the way in which virtue is applied, is understood and applied to Jesus, then we can see how the understanding of virtue has changed and how our Christology has changed. We are no longer understanding virtue as right moral action. We are now understanding as virtue having suffered innocently, but the innocence doesn't come from the fact that we've done nothing wrong. It comes from the fact of where we begin our story. If someone attacked another human being and was brought in and they said, where were you last night? And they began the story with where they were at 5 a.m. instead of where they were at midnight. They would be doing that in order to avoid locating themselves in their history. That person is not innocent and should not be an object of our sympathy and should not be equated with Christ on the cross. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.